Hi everyone, so this week I've been talking to Dr Danny Penman and this is quite a poignant interview for me as in my first session with my psychologist he gave me a book called Finding Peace in a Frantic World by Danny. I've no doubt this book helped change my life and alter a lot of ingrained negative habits. Since then I've also read Mindfulness for Health and The Art of Breathing which are equally fascinating and helpful with Mindfulness for Health receiving recognition as the best book in popular medicine by the British Medical Association. Our chat encompasses a load of stuff, including Danny's life-changing paragliding accident to being taught meditation at his secondary school. I really hope you enjoy the interview and find Danny's work as useful as I have. So hi Danny, uh, how are you and thank you for joining us. I'm fine and yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. I, you know, uh, anybody who gives me airspace to talk about mindfulness, I'm, I'm happy. So to start with can you give us a kind of brief background about who you are what you do um and your relationship to mental health in general yes i'm uh, i'm co-author of the of the bestseller uh, mindfulness uh, finding peace in a frantic world um and also uh, mindfulness for health um uh, both have recently been put on the books on prescription screen scheme, so you can you can get them from prescribed from your doctor, oh, wow. um, and they are um, becoming, I suppose, one of the main. Uh, I think they call it bibliotherapies, yeah. where people can go away uh, and read a book and you know hopefully get some relief from their uh, mental and physical anguish. Um, and I, I came across this whole field um, literally by by accident. I about ten years ago, uh, ten or twelve years ago, um, I I was a very very keen paraglider pilot, and you know it was the absolute centre of my life. And uh, one day, uh, uh, twelve years ago. I was flying over the Cotswolds in, in southern England and um, my canopy collapsed. Oh God. And I know, I mean, it was uh, literally, you know, one of those heart stopping moments that the canopy oh, collapsed and I fell. Yeah, yeah, I fell head over heels onto the hillside. And luckily I landed on my feet. Uh, but unluckily, the the lower half of my right leg was uh, driven an inch or two through my knee and into my thigh. Um, so I survived, but I was in a really terrible state. Um, yes, you know, I, I was absolutely yeah, yeah. I mean, I was literally smashed to pieces, and I I was lying there on this on this hillside uh, completely stunned totally unable to breathe uh, the air and the life had, had been knocked out of me and i suddenly remembered a form of meditation i'd learned when i was about 16 or 17 i was i was taught it in secondary school and i you know in sheer desperation I, I, at this point you can imagine i was in extreme pain i mean it was just awful and somewhere along the line i'd i'd, I'd picked up that uh, meditation could be used for for pain relief and 
I had absolutely no painkillers with me at all. Uh, it's not the kind of thing you carry with you normally. Um, and so in absolute sheer desperation, I decided to try this meditation I'd learned many years previously. And I, it was a very simple breathing meditation. And I didn't even know the name of this meditation. It turned out it was mindfulness meditation. But, you know, in sheer desperation, I used this meditation. And much to my surprise, I, I, first of all, I managed to regain control of my breathing. You know, I, I literally, after maybe 30 seconds, managed to take a breath. And I just did this very simple breathing meditation, which, which involves just focusing on the sensations of breathing. And, you know, much to my surprise, I found quite quickly um, the pain began to diminish quite significantly. Uh, it didn't go completely. Um, you know, I was still aware of it. Uh, it was, but it was as if there was a thin piece of glass between me and the pain. And so it was a way of, of kind of coping with this pain. And, you know, it, it did diminish quite dramatically. And this allowed me to you know, do the things necessary such as a phone and ambulance and just generally check myself and make sure I, how, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I was still functioning, you yeah. know, there wasn't any holes in my head or things like that. So I actually calmed down quite dramatically and regained control of the situation. And um, eventually after about half an hour, I was, I, ambulance arrived, I was taken to hospital and, um, it turned out I had I had a, a series of three major operations in front of me. I had uh, what's known as a Taylor spatial frame fitted to my leg, and this uh, excuse me a moment. I just need a glass of water. Um, <laughs> um, a Taylor spatial frame. This this looks like uh, a medieval torture device. Really, it consists of <laughs> four. Uh, I think there were titanium titanium rings around the outside of my leg, 16 wires and bolts that went through one side of the leg, through a fragment of bone and out the other side of the leg. Um, so it was a horrendous construction that, uh, that they put on my leg. And at this stage, this technique was just out of the experimental phase. So it was just starting to be used in the NHS in very specialized uh, uh, hospitals and you know they told me I was probably going to have this on my leg for 18 to 24 months they said and uh, you know just having one of these devices attached to your leg is really it's not only very distressing it's it's actually quite painful in yeah. that it's it's kind of constantly irritates you really uh, you can't sleep properly because you, your leg is essentially suspended inside a cage um, I was only able to sleep for maybe 20 minutes a time at a time uh, I was taking huge quantities of painkillers and uh, you know they, they they were trying to give me all kinds of other things as well um, and I decided that I, I, because I got so much relief using this meditation um, immediately after my accident, I, I began to use it more and more in hospital. 
And over my subsequent month in hospital and uh, the month's convalescence at home, I really became quite fascinated by the power of this meditation because I managed to cut my intake of pain of painkillers by about two thirds. I managed wow. to stop all the other drugs that um, they were giving me, and um, so I became increasingly fascinated. I had a lot of time on my hands, as you could imagine. Yeah. Um, apart from the three hours of physio I was doing each day, you know that left quite a few hours. Uh, so I began to research this more and more, and I eventually came across the work of uh, Professor. Mark Williams at Oxford University, and he'd taken the core uh, meditation techniques um, and and turned them into a treatment for the worst forms of depression. Um, and you know, I contacted him because I, you know, at this stage I really didn't even know what the technique I'd been using was called. But I subsequently learned it was mindfulness. I became fascinated by the techniques that he'd uh, developed and adapted, and it became apparent that um, uh, well, Mark had developed turned them into a, into a technique known as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, yeah. and it had just recently been approved by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Because it was turned out it was one of the at least as good as drugs or counseling for the treatment of the worst forms of depression. And uh, you know, so I was I was using this on a daily basis and I was a journalist at the time and I I approached my usual newspapers, you know, to try and uh, persuade them to run an article on MBCT and mindfulness. Now 12 years ago 10 years ago this was you know nobody'd even heard the word mindfulness to be honest it's everywhere now but yeah it's about it's hard to imagine yeah. you struggle to get yeah. to papers when it's you probably couldn't go through a day of of reading a newspaper yeah. without it now i know i know um but really nobody i mean me the word was so unheard that everybody would go mindlessness mindlessness <laughs> you know <laughs> um and eventually, I I, um, I managed to persuade the Daily Telegraph to run a really short article uh, off the back of some work that had been done by Willem Kuyken that again had proven that MBCT was you know, a highly effective treatment. And he's a colleague of Mark Williams at Oxford, isn't he? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yes, and then he was at I think it was Exeter. Um, and uh, he he was kind of, uh, uh, I suppose, one of the younger pioneers, really. Um, he, you know, he was a generation younger than Mark. So he was kind of following up a lot of Mark's and his team's work. And obviously now he's pushed this forward an awful lot. Uh, but I think he was just getting into these, these ideas at that time. And he'd done this great piece of research with his colleagues that proved the, these techniques were, you know, highly effective. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, my own recovery as a uh, as a result of these techniques, I mean, it uh, it was just astonishing how much faster I recovered. Just mostly because I think 
a lot of my stress and anxiety had gone. A lot of the kind of deep unhappiness that I was feeling about the situation I was in. So that's uh, had... called secondary suffering, the kind of... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, because, you know, there was, you know, I was in, I was smashed to pieces. Uh, but when, when you're in a lot of pain, there's a huge amount of mental anguish that accompanies this. You know, I was highly stressed by the situation. I was anxious about the future. This was making me really unhappy. I mean, I wasn't, you know, clinically depressed, but I wouldn't say I was the happiest bunny yeah. on the planet at that point. Understandably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I was astonished at how fast uh, my recovery, uh, well, it accelerated uh, dramatically. Um, instead of having this device, the Taylor spatial frame on my leg for 18 months, 24 months, uh, I had it removed after 17 weeks. And the surgeon was, well, he was astonished because he said that um, he treated about a hundred injuries with this with this technique and mine was in the top five in terms yeah, of well. severity and uh, yeah he was he was blown away at just how fast my leg had recovered and you know i put this down you know in large part to to the meditations and you know there's obviously lots of other things i was doing as well but you know the the meditations had a huge impact i think yeah so something that I've got a million questions, but something mm, that yeah. that stood out to me was, um, I don't know what kind of era you went to school in, but it strikes me as really quite progressive that, yeah, um, that a school was teaching mindfulness at that yes. at that time or meditate. I don't know what it was called, but um, but that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, this was um, I must have been taught it. It was either 1983 or 1985, mid mid 1980s, and this was a comprehensive school uh, on the edge of Liverpool, just outside Liverpool. It's not what most people would, uh, yeah. It it wasn't like a, a hippie private school set in the in the middle of Surrey, that kind of thing. But it was just they just had some teachers who who were interested in. The whole kind of work-life balance, I suppose. Yeah. They taught it to us um, to cope with exam stress and things like that. Um, it was part of a general studies A-level. And they just taught us this whole range of techniques that were going to help us uh, in later life, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it was really progressive. So did after that, did that kind of implement into a... Um like a daily practice or is it more kind of intermittent when you got stressed you did it and then left it for a few weeks yeah that that's exactly what it was the, the latter um what would happen is typically you know i become stressed by something maybe exams or a work situation or what have you and um i would then do mindfulness for probably only a few weeks really um and then it would just diminish over the next month or two. And, you know, life would get in the way, quite yeah. frankly. And um, then what would happen six months later, maybe a year later, something else would happen. And uh, so I'd go back and do this very simple breathing meditation for probably about half an hour at a time. And again, I would do it for a number of weeks. And then it would just drift, drift away. 
So even um, doing it intermittently like that, you found you found benefits to it. Yes. Um, yeah, most definitely. And I suppose, I mean, knowing what I know now, I think what was happening is I was gradually becoming attuned to my own mental state so yeah. that I would realize when I was becoming stressed, perhaps earlier than I would have in the past or earlier than most people would. And then I would stop the downward spiral uh, with with meditation and then I'd get back on an even keel and off I'd go again and you know live live life to the full and something else would happen I'd get stressed and then you know repeat the cycle yeah that seems strikes me as being very mature and aware at, at that age that you were approaching a period where you might not be particularly stress-free and having a a um a therapy to to kind of prevent getting to those worst stages yeah i think that what happens when you do start um mind you know learning these techniques you you do do them for a while and it does begin to make permanent changes that you're not really aware of at the time um, i mean this was a completely unstructured uh therapy as it were that i was doing you know i didn't know it's inherent power there was no research for this these techniques 25 years ago um so i was i suppose i was doing it in the way that people would have done it centuries ago which is you know this, this was a technique there was no real kind of intellectual grounding you'd just be taught a technique you'd go away and do it and uh you know and then the the benefits would begin to take root and and then obviously you just carry on with your life and then something would hit you and something, uh, but something yeah quite drastic yeah to make you yeah read into it a lot more and develop yeah i suppose a daily practice now yes exactly i mean what i hope I, i've recently writ, written or my latest book uh, is called the art of breathing and beautiful it's such a oh beautiful... i'm glad you like it a beautifully written book but also the illustrations are so nice as well oh, i'm glad you glad you like it because i uh, what i wanted to do with that was really share a lot of the techniques that i'd learned in my earliest years and uh the idea i mean there is some yeah reasonable amount of intellectual underpinnings and explanations but what i really wanted to do was just teach people some basic techniques that you know, they, they maybe they wouldn't even do them whilst reading the book, you know, but the idea is that the seeds would be planted and when they hit a crunch point in their life, they would have some basic tools that would allow them to uh, to kind of deal with it and begin to build mindfulness in the, into their life. Because, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of evidence now that uh, full mindfulness courses like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, but also... Uh, the, the my my first two books, um, there's a lot of evidence that they work, but you have to really apply yourself for eight weeks. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think you know lots of people do do them for the full course, but uh, I think lots of people also maybe only do the first couple of weeks and then just drift away from it for whatever reason. And so I kind of wanted to reach 
the people who had maybe stopped doing a course partway through yeah. or or would never you know maybe they weren't in 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 need of an eight-week course at that point in their life you know they didn't see the points they didn't want to spend the time because there was no pressing need to and and yet there will come a point point in their lives you know you are, you can be absolutely certain there will be a point in their lives where they need some basic mindfulness techniques and that's what the art of breathing is is designed to do really to give people the, that basic grounding yeah and i also think with something like the art of breathing um and the other two books they i th- i think i've read that you said mark williams original book was was it called a mindful way through depression or that's right the mindful way yeah. through depression and yeah someone would never pick up a book with depression in the title and read it on the tube or the bus so it's that's important right. to to kind of give these books a more general audience yeah that that's absolutely right i mean um i just i mean people should feel free enough to read a book with depression in the title on the tube but uh, but the reality is they probably won't especially if they're actually feeling depressed because they'll be feeling vulnerable probably anxious too and they just don't want the world to know about it they want to force their way through the situation and uh and yet the technique they, they need most of all at that point is mindfulness and that and they won't pick up a book that yeah. <laughs> that implies they uh, you know that they need it. Yeah. So can you just go into a bit more about I think you briefly touched on it, the um I can't remember what the study was, but the one that looked into the effectiveness of I think it was doing a mindfulness based cognitive behavioural therapy course. Um, versus taking a course of antidepressants? Yes, this was... Um, the, the, well, there's been a, a great many uh, studies now. Um, which one were you referring to? The, the course in our book that was done at Cambridge or, or the uh, some of the other courses that involve MBCT? I think it was the one that was done at Cambridge. Okay, yes. Um at Cambridge, uh, they for a number of years have been using our book to uh, to help students who are you know suffering from uh, mostly exam stress, but you know just general life stress. Uh, some were uh, clinically depressed, and um, others were uh, you know just very unhappy and stressed and anxious. And so what they decided to do was they adapted our book um, uh, for, for, for the student population and this was really um, where they would kind of you know there'd be a group meeting each week for eight weeks where a ba- the basic technique would be taught um, and people would discuss their feelings and uh, they, they would then be taught a meditation from our book and then they'd be asked to uh, go away and read a chapter of our book and to practice the meditation and then come back the next week discuss what they'd learned how it had benefited them and then they'd be introduced to the next week's technique and they uh, they they were running this for a couple of years and they noticed anecdotally that you know there was it had a very significant positive impact so they mounted a large scale clinical trial and found that it was, you know, highly effective. Um, 
and uh, yeah, it it is I think becoming one of their mainstay treatments now for for um, for, for for students who are suffering from the general stresses and strains of, of, of student life. That's amazing. So do you think? Yeah. Do you think that actually having that group environment also helped? Um... It's difficult to tell. I mean, first first off, you would assume it would help, you know, because uh, uh, you know uh, having a support group around you um, seems like a great idea. And I think for some people it it is, but I think for others. Um, they might not want to share their feelings with the group. Yeah. You know, there might be 10 or 20 people in that group and they just don't want to open up to it. So there are good sides and downsides. And I think it depends very, very much on a person's individual character. And I think one of the characteristics of um, depression and also stress is people don't like to admit it. They don't certainly don't want to admit it to uh, you know a, a large group of people so I think actually just going away and doing the course by yourself can have benefits uh, for that group but others you know they're they're inherently more extrovert in nature and they want to share their feelings and they gain benefit from sharing their feelings so so what I'm saying is really is it depends very much on the individual person yeah and i suppose for some people a kind of sitting down or a lying down practice won't really work so can you think of some kind of alternatives that are easier some mindfulness alternatives that are easier to incorporate in everyday life for people who kind of say they're too busy to to sit down for 10 or 20 minutes yeah i mean my favorite one um is to do a sounds and thoughts meditation on on the bus or a tube or uh, you know whenever you're commuting or traveling in the morning and this is um well it consists essentially of if you're on the tube for example uh sitting down closing your eyes perhaps pretending you're listening to music and spending a few moments focusing on the sensations of breathing and then gradually broadening your mind to notice all of the uh, sounds around you. So, you know, if you're on a tube train, you probably hear the hammering of the wheels on the track, maybe people talking, maybe um, the sound of the wind whistling around the edges of the train. You know, you're, the, the sound field or the soundscape is is incredibly rich you know even you might think of it as just like intense noise but actually if you start to tease away all of the different sounds um you know you it becomes quite interesting and what you can then do is after you spent a few minutes listening to all the different sounds you know not reacting to those sounds not being drawn into them or, or pulling away from them but just accepting them as they are if you take that state of mind and then start to focus on the thoughts that are in your mind, you realize that actually your thoughts are very, very similar to, they'll behave in a similar way to sound. You know, your thoughts arrive seemingly from nowhere. They stay for a while and then they just, uh, they just dissipate. Mm. 
and and that's kind of one of the core things you learn through mindfulness really is you know the way your thoughts just appear as if from nowhere and i think that's also one of the big misconceptions is that it's not a practice of trying to completely empty your mind it's being able to kind of the psychologist that i worked with says that it's it's putting your your thoughts on a workbench in your mind so you let them come in you see that they're there you don't have to react to them and then you can just put them up on the workbench and go back to to focusing on the sounds or your breathing or whether you're eating or drinking yeah so have you had much pushback from people who don't want to engage in this kind of stuff because they see it as an inherently um i suppose buddhist practice or have people been atheists religious people have they all been quite open in in accepting some something that has its roots in a buddhist practice yeah i mean i was i i've been quite surprised actually uh, maybe i'm too cynical but i have been surprised at how little pushback there's been um i think there's been a bit more of a reaction uh, by christian fundamentalists in america yeah and uh, who seem to feel this especially in this in the context of schools because um religion is absolutely forbidden in american schools so they see uh, teaching children or, or young adults mindfulness in school as as a as Buddhism by the back door. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not at all. You know, it is absolutely not. However, they they're getting quite hot under the collar about this, and they're using it. Well, they're doing two things. One is to try and ensure it's not taught in schools, which is a tragedy. But also, they're saying, hold on, if you're teaching Buddhism. We want Christianity taught, but their flavor of Christianity, not not the flavor of Christianity you or I might notice. Okay. <laughs> um, and so that's the pushback, really. And they haven't haven't been that successful. And I think it's mostly because um, of the scientific evidence. You know, uh, it is you know it's beyond doubt that it's highly effective, and. And it is anybody who knows religious history will know uh, it's not uh, inherently Buddhist, but it's also um, it is, you know, these techniques were used throughout all religions and were quite common in Christianity until the late Middle Ages. Um, And they were used. The techniques were used really to settle the mind yeah. uh, before before prayer or to kind of to settle the mind to kind of contemplate uh, the nature of the religion or or to contact not really to contact God as it were but you know just to create a calm state of mind. Yeah, and, and atheists, pretty... yeah, atheists are perfectly happy with these techniques because they realise they're not inherently religious. You know, they're yeah. just a way of calming and settling the mind ready to to engage with the world and i suppose the way that you you and mark williams and john kabat-zinn have written about it it is in a completely secular way it's it yeah it, yeah it's open to anyone and actually i would argue that if these practices benefit you as a person it might well allow you to be a better christian 
yeah muslim hindu whatever if yes. you're a better person if you're more compassionate yeah um it could yeah. do that for you well absolutely and um you know we all grew up um in you know, with, with a, a religious background um you know even atheists have grown up with a religious background of some description and uh yeah i think yeah i, I think you're right you know it just helps you to understand um your mind the nature of the world and the culture you grow up in and and that's good really you know less stress and anxiety makes you a better person i think <laughs> i completely agree <laughs> so yeah. just to kind of round things off what would be your top tip for people um to keep their mental health in a good way um i think meditating uh ideally 20 minutes a day 10 to 20 minutes a day is i mean that's what really we should all be aiming for i mean it's not always practical um you know even the most accomplished meditators will have days maybe even a week where they just cannot fit it in but the important thing to remember is when you feel like you can't fit it in that is the time you really need to do it yeah i read and... a, i think a really quote i really liked it was um i can't remember who said it but it was someone that said if you if you're too busy to do 10 minutes a day you probably need to do 20 minutes a day <laughs> yes <laughs> and it's so so true and i think the most important thing as well is to remember if you don't do it uh, on one day and maybe that day carries on for a week never punish yourself for that yeah. you know uh, accept that yeah that time's gone um but right now i'm going to meditate and i'm just going to sit down and i'm going to meditate for one minute and hopefully you'll carry on meditating for 10 or 20 minutes um, yeah and it's even and, not beating yourself up when yeah when you're doing it and you're you kind of yeah. go with a thought and it you know it spirals into all kinds of weird and yeah. wonderful places it's not yeah. beating yourself up when you realize you've gone to those places because yeah. it's actually a good thing that you've realized because then you can come back to to kind of doing it again absolutely i mean i you know i've been doing this for quite some time now and i, I everybody i know who spent many years meditating has exactly the same problems as somebody who's just starting out yeah. in that you know i've had a a pretty crazy week and i haven't been able to meditate anywhere near as much as i would have liked or needed to and you know this morning it was like i had a mountain of work to do and i kept thinking i'll just do the meditation later i'll just do the meditation later and at that point i wrote down on my to-do list right meditate for 20 minutes and then meditate for 30 minutes you know because if if you don't build it into your life it won't happen you know and, yeah and it probably uh, it probably improved your your focus and concentration when you had to do that work yeah i am I, I don't know how many hours i've meditated now over the years but i am always surprised when i get to the end of the meditation and i open my eyes and i suddenly realize how calm and clear-sighted and relaxed i am compared to when i began maybe 20 or 30 minutes before and uh, you know, uh, I, I should know this by now, but I am always surprised at how effective this technique is. Yeah. So have you got any interesting, interesting projects coming up? Any? 
Yeah, I'm I'm still um, working on on another mindfulness book, which um, uh, I, I to be honest, I've been wrestling with it for quite some time yeah. now. <laughs> and I put it aside, and and I've just come back to it because I just I'm fascinated by the parallels between certain aspects of science and mindfulness and the states of mind it gives you and those are ideas i'm just kind of playing with so it's kind of an evolution and an extension of of my most recent book uh, the art of breathing so i'm taking some of those ideas and just just seeing where they go really awesome and where can we find out more about about you and what you do and and where to grab the books um the best place is to go to my website franticworld.com that's f-r-a-n-t-i-c world.com uh there's loads of meditations that you can uh, download for free there's loads of general background information and uh yeah and you can click on a link and and, and, and buy the books if you wish but the most important thing i think is just to have a look around and try some of the techniques awesome thank you very much that's okay Hi guys, just a quick reminder that we aren't trained psychologists or psychiatrists or therapists and if you're having your own problems, don't hesitate to go and see your GP or use the services of charities like Mind or Calm or anything like that. Cheers.